You're listening to Education Review Radio. Hi, I'm Wade Zaglitz, the Education Editor for Education Review. Much has been said about the strength of the Finnish education system, with mandatory master's qualifications for teachers, great international results and good government funding. Today I'm talking to Michael Lawrence, an English, music and humanities teacher at a Geelong school in Victoria. He has recently written a book about Finland's education system entitled Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland, which is due to be released in April. What inspired you to write the book? I had some um, good friends over in the Finnish education system and I knew, I knew them through uh, Australian music. I've done some writing about Australian music. They were big fans of that. And when they found out that I was a teacher, uh, they said, look, why don't you come over? They said, we can get you into the schools over here because one of them in particular is quite senior in the IT area of the Finnish education department. And, uh, you know, I thought about it. I thought, okay, that might be an interesting thing to do, a bit of good PD and pick up a few of the the secrets and and so on. So I went over there in 2017 for the first time and um, went to some schools in Helsinki and Tampere. And basically I got put on the spot by some um, teacher educators, you might call them, I guess, at a, you know, teachers at a teacher's college uh, who all knew about the Australian system. And they are starting to ask me a few questions about NAPLAN and so on. And I can still remember sitting in, the, in this thing and, and being sort of on the back foot going, oh, you know, they said, why are you giving NAPLAN, you know, matriculation type tests to kids as young as eight years old? And um, I just, you know, suddenly felt like I was a child molester or something. I was on the back foot a little bit. And essentially it turned from a look at what I could find out from Finland that might be a handy hit or starting to have a real look at what we're doing as well, if you know what I mean. You can't really look at one without the other. Sure. And I started to, to look closely at what we were doing through answering questions from Finnish people like that. And I started to realise, boy, we have got some issues here. And like most Australian teachers, I think, when things like NAPLAN and standardisation and so on all started to come in, we were told, oh, these are a trial and so on, and, you know, it's it's not high stakes and so on, and, look, we're going to try this curriculum thing and bring in the Australian curriculum and so on. And, you know, they come in as trials and you think, well, I'm, I'm sure there's a stack of good research behind this stuff and that's why we're all doing it. And once I started to look more closely at it, there isn't. There isn't this huge body of research that says, this stuff really works and, and, you know, brings home the, the bacon, et cetera. It just doesn't, there isn't research there for it to stack up. And the most successful um, countries in the world, according to the PISA tests, uh, places like Finland and Estonia and so on now mm. are using um, very different methods to what we're using. And um, they all know about our methods, but they, you know, avoid them like the plague because they know they don't work. Well, tell me about your book. What topics does it cover specifically? Yeah, sure. Look, the book itself has got the, the first chapter is uh, a little bit about me as a teacher and my teaching background and how I sort of um, got into education and, and became a teacher and so on. Uh, essentially, I put that in because I was um, was not, you know, uh, a, the natural sort of fit for a teacher. I was a very creative person. If I'd have done something else, I'd have probably been a musician. Uh, and But I think that sort of led me to having an interest in this kind of stuff because the standardisation 
the education system and that plan, etc., ignores everything to do with creativity. Um, so that, the, the first bit's about my a bit about my background, so that people just know who I am, because I'm not an academic or anything like that. You know, that's not my background. Uh, but 30 years of teaching, and then the next chapter looks at that plan, because I think that's one of the most controversial things. And as I said, that was the first thing that was really thrown back at me when I was in Finland. Was you know. Um, why are you guys doing this? You know, does it work? If it doesn't work, why do you keep doing it, etc.? And I remember one one teacher, one of these teacher educators in particular, put me on the spot. Said, "Why do Australian teachers let this happen to their students?" They said, "In Finland, we would not let it happen." And I was, it's very difficult to explain to them. Well, we don't have that autonomy anymore. You know, we're not allowed to to do any teacher that kind of tried to to take a stand like that. I would face some pretty mm. strong objections. I think. Uh, and yet I suddenly realised, well, you know, the ACER and the, the organisations that put together the NAP plan, uh, you know, they're all thinking about their interests and they get hundreds of millions of dollars from it. The states themselves don't want to sort of um, pull out of it because, you know, there's great pressure for it to be an Australia-wide thing. And any school principal that was to say, oh, look, you know, I am not, don't want to do that, would have the finger pointed at them and say, what's wrong, you know, why aren't you doing it, all schools... Who is actually looking at the test and saying, what, why should the students do this? Is what Could this hurt the students? Is there any problem with this for the students? Is it suitable for them? And I had um, a year eight class last year who I was talking to about some um, growth mindset stuff. And, and a few of them mentioned uh, that they, they, they don't like maths and so on. And anyway, the conversation went on a bit. And third of the kids in the class put their hand up to say that they could remember doing the grade three maths and that plan test and deciding that they were no good at maths. And I thought, this is scandalous. There must be... And these were the really good kids. These were the ones that want to please the adults. And when, you know, when kids are eight or nine years old, most of them do anyway, but they've got in there and they've assumed that they've trusted the adults and the teachers. They've trusted that if they're given this test, they can do the test. And when they couldn't do it, because you know how that plan starts easy and gets hard, harder and harder, when they get to these questions they can't do, they felt like they were failures, they're no good at maths, they've made that decision. And you just think, this is an absolute scandal. Yeah. If I was a maths teacher, I would be ropeable. And I've got one of the guys who's done one of the chapters in the book is a, a maths teacher. And he's just, you know, ropeable about here to hear things like that because he says, I get kids... He teaches secondary maths and has done for a long time. And he said, they come in, he said, they hate maths and I've not started the first lesson yet. And he wants, to, you know, he said, Where, why is that? Where has this come from? And things like NAPLAN, you think, how many kids across the country have made those same decisions? How many of them have decided that for English or science as well? Uh, and yet be, all because we've given it to them at a really young age and no one's actually explaining to them, you're going to get to bits on this test that you can't do. Don't worry about that. You know, kids are losing sleep over that plan. My, I've got a, my youngest son is now 17. He told me, Dad, when I was in grade three and grade five, we worried about it, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, by year seven and nine, he said, we knew that it didn't matter. And he said, I can tell you that, I said, I turn a look around during the test. He said, there's a half a dozen kids I can see who, who aren't writing for most of the test. And he said, they're writing down what they're going to have for tea or something. And uh, I thought, well, where is the, the data on how many kids don't bother to put anything on their NAP plan paper or whatever? And where, where's the question, too, that says, how do you feel about mathematics? How do you feel about English? 
you know, where's those kind of questions as well? Because then you start to get some information that you could really do something with. Because if you could discover that, yeah, there is a huge problem with kids not enjoying this stuff, then you start to sort of get to the question about, hey, maybe if we can swing that around, maybe that's the problem rather than kids aren't any good at maths. Maybe they just don't like it and we're not looking at how do we teach this in a manner that they actually enjoy it and make them enthusiastic for it. I've actually documented a couple of cases in the book. There was an inquiry in Canberra last year into NAPLAN and uh, one principal came forward and he said that uh, at his school, a grade five student tried to kill himself during the test at the school. He said he'd excused himself, asked to go to the bathroom. One, another teacher came down, happened to have a look at his paper and saw what he'd written and found it quite concerning and went looking for him and found him in the bathroom trying to kill himself. Now, this, of course, because it's a school kid, because it's a suicide, et cetera, et cetera, it's not reported in the media. But you're just saying, hang on, Canberra's not exactly the biggest state or the most popular state in the country. How many times has this happened through the years in other places and we've not heard about it? How many times does it need to happen once is surely enough to make us say, well, that's too many? You know what I'm saying? It's just ridiculous. It's all just kept quiet. That one only came out because of that inquiry into... um, the tested standardised testing in Canberra schools. Mm. Otherwise, we'd have never heard about it at all. Michael, what kinds of evidence did you use to inform your book? Yeah, look, I realised as I did this, I thought there's no point in, in it just being uh, the story of what I experienced or saw or whatever. So I've, I've written, I've read over 100 dissertations, books, articles and things like that on the Finnish education system uh, and basically on um, education in general, because I thought I've got to find out what what does the current sort of educational ideology say about the techniques that Finland are using, and what does what does also the current thinking say about the systems that Australia's using, and basically sort of see is there anything to back them up or whatever. And I've even looked at the neuroscience on it and things like that. Um, I've and yeah, just to try and, and so there's lots of that stuff. There's seven pages in the bibliography and uh, more than a hundred different sources cited and footnotes all over the place and so on. Um, yeah, compared to look, the Midnight Oil book I did was 150,000 words and a coffee table book. This one's only half the size, but it's a lot more complex and a lot more uh, citations and things going on like that all over the place. So there's heaps of heaps of studies and research and evidence that I've looked into to try and just make it, you know, no one wants to, everyone's got an opinion on this stuff. So you've really got to have some, some research and so on to to back it up. I think there's heaps of that there, but it was a real, um, I was had a long conversation with one of the editors at one point. He was a guy who'd done a lot of work at the age and he wanted me, basically I was saying, look, I feel like I'm always on a fine line between, this being a good story to read and just some sort of um, academic research work, which is boring uh, as watching paint dry, you know. So it was mm-hmm. a fine line between that, trying to keep it readable with without actually going off on a tangent and That's leaving, your, you know, forgetting about evidence and so on, all for the sake of a good story, so to speak. It's a fine line, isn't it? There's it only is. so many citations and footnotes and things that you'll put up with before you think, hang on, I'm, I'm starting to forget where the original story went. And finally... What two or three educational practices do you think we could adopt from Finland? I've really looked hard at this because I wanted to, to use as, as much stuff as I could immediately. And I thought, what can I implement immediately right now 
without having to turn the whole system upside down because obviously that's that's tricky for anyone to do. So I've started doing things like giving kids a lot more autonomy for starters. So for instance, in a history class, I would um, if we had to, we had to do the Middle Ages, right? The Australian curriculum said you've got to do the Middle Ages. So I found a, a fifteen or twenty minute YouTube video on the Middle Ages, just a general introductory kind of thing. And I said to the students. This is the kind of thing I saw done in Finland. I said, have a look at this, guys. And I said, at the end of the video, I want everyone to give me three or four questions, three or four how and why questions about aspects of the Middle Ages that interest you. So we watch the video. I then get hands up for the question, go through the class for the questions and write down as many of them as I can. Obviously, there's a lot of repeats and put them all down on the board and talk about them. There's a few that you could dismiss straight away, but most, you know, you get some good ones. We ended up with about nine or 10 good ones on the board. And then what I was able to do is say, okay, who would like to look further into say um, religious ideas in the middle ages? And you get a few kids doing that and go through the whole list and break the class up into groups of three or four, each of them exploring one of these nine things that they've identified. And then, so, right, you guys have got, you know, X amount of time to go out there, depending on how many classes you have, of course, at your disposal, but to go out and do some research on this and you're going to come back and present what you found to the class. This works so much better than reading from the textbook or even watching, you know, videos and things like that. And these, these kids then, they owned their work. It was something that they were interested in already because they'd identified it as such. And when they actually did their presentations to the other kids, the other kids were interested because they were hearing presenters who were enthusiastic about what they were presenting. So it worked really well. And the enthusiasm for that was, I've taught that for a lot of years. And once I started doing it that way, huge improvement. And it's just one way that you can, with the still standardized curriculum and all the, the set texts and things that we have, you can still do things like that in an Australian classroom and make a difference immediately. Right, I recall going into a history class in Tampere in Finland. Tampere is the second largest city there. And I sat outside the room for half an hour waiting um, for the class to start. Anyway, the teacher showed up and we walked in and the class was full of kids. I had no I thought I was sitting outside an empty classroom. <laughs> they were sitting there quietly working away. And uh, I said to the teacher after a while, I said, what are the, the kids were about year nine or ten, I reckon. I said to him, what were these? What are these kids studying in history? And he said, "Oh, they are studying from the beginning of time to now." And I said, "Oh, okay. Well, that's a, a pretty big." He said, "Yeah, but he said for many of these kids, it's the last time they'll study history. So we want to make sure they enjoy it, and and continue to do history for the rest of their lives if possible." I thought, "Wow, you would never hear anyone say something like that in Australia. It's all about grades and marks and so on. But the Finnish are all about people enjoying learning and mm. loving learning and." If they love learning, they've been well taught and the teacher sees it as a success. The marks are almost irrelevant. And I just think, wow, what a healthy thing. Isn't that what most teachers went into teaching for? Because they like learning. And if you can pass that on to students, you've been successful. I remember seeing a, a survey in Finland in 2012, something like 60-something percent of Finnish adults had completed some sort of formal educational course that year. I thought that's incredible, but that's that's the evidence to show that they do see learning as a lifelong thing and not just this thing that, you know, you give them in year 12 and it's all standardised, they have to do it, you better do this, otherwise you're going to fail dismally, you won't get to do this, you won't get... By the time they're finished year 12, many of them never want to look at a book again, they never want to go near a classroom again or, or do anything to do with school. 
because we have just forced it all upon them and a million and twelve rules as well to make sure that they comply with it all. Michael Lawrence, author of Testing 321, What Australian Education Can Learn from Finland. Thanks so much for talking to Education Review.